Author, lecturer, and activist Marianne Williamson, who is currently running for president as a Democrat, joined us for Civil Liberties in the Presidency. This event was presented by the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Policy in the American Civil Liberties Union of New Hampshire. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the guest or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Thank you so much, and thank you, Professor Graby. Thank you, Dean Carpenter. It's an honor to be here at the Rudman Center. Thank you to all of you. I want to talk to you this morning about my own personal journey in relation uh, to the ACLU and to the conversation that we're having here. I grew up with a father. Some of you are too young to know exactly what this means, but some of you will understand what it means. My father was like a cross between William Kunstler and Zorba the Greek. (laughs) So that tells you uh, how often the ACLU was discussed in my home uh, when I was growing up. And I also was brought up with a family that gave me a great sense of historical reference, a great sense not only of the hope and the possibility that that the United States has been for our family, all four of my grandparents having come through Ellis Island, our family being Jewish, our family having certainly uh, been part of a larger narrative of oppression historically, but also of the profound hopes and possibilities that the United States had meant, not only for for my uh, family, but for millions and millions of people. One of the things that my father and mother also made very clear to us was that none of these rights and none of these miracles could be taken for granted. That those things which were uh, out to oppress people 200 years ago, if allowed to, would be oppressing people today. And I'm reminded of a line from Martin Luther King when he said, we must have a quantitative shift in our circumstances as well as a qualitative shift in our souls. I find that very significant because I find when it comes to the erosion of civil rights in the United States, it's not just a quantitative policy problem, it's a qualitative soul problem. It's not just that forces are at work that would erode these liberties, it's how many Americans don't seem to realize this is so dangerous. Too many Americans seem to think that the American Revolution established established rights that could then be taken for granted from there on out. And that's simply not how life works. It's not how politics works because it's not how life works. You might achieve something today, but if you don't re-achieve it tomorrow, it will still not be true. You might have exercised, you might have had a very good diet last year, but that doesn't mean you're cultivating health in your in, in in your body this year. And so even though at certain points in our history, the erosion of civil liberties and the erosion on the rights that are given us and granted to us in our Constitution took particularly pernicious form, slavery, segregation, suppression of women, genocide and cultural annihilation of Native Americans, Now, ladies and gentlemen, something almost more pernicious is occurring. It's not so much that there is one particular institutional reality. That would be like an operable tumor. And we could say, see, see that? We need to cut that out. Rather, it is a mindset. It is a a, a 
an issue here and an issue there, and an issue here and an issue there, which to those of us who recognize the larger narrative of American history, those of us who recognize the larger issues of civil rights and why they must always be vigilantly protected, because there will always be a thief at the door if you leave those windows and doors open, there are too many people in America who, because they only see one symptom here or one symptom there, go, well, I mean, it's not that big a deal. Whereas those of us who are standing back and seeing the whole, the whole panoply go, no, it's a seriously big deal. I remember being, I, I always get Idaho and Wyoming uh, confused. I think it was I, Idaho. It was, uh, I, you know, I'm running for president. I, better, I think I need to, like, <laughs> actually, I, I think I'm, I'm not going to say that again. I'm going to find out. <clears throat> it was, uh, um, I think it was, I think it was Wyoming. And it was, I think, in the late 80s, and there were some massive fires. And what happened in a particular summer in the late 80s uh, actually changed the calculus of, of professional firefighting. Because before that time, they were basically run according to the principle of an acceptable burn. That if there was a fire, that there was a point in their calculus where if it's only burning this much, it's best to just let it burn. That's the best way to fight the fire. But what happened that particular summer that turned out to have such catastrophic consequences was that there were too many acceptable burn, otherwise acceptable burns happening at the same time too close to one another. And so there was just an eruption uh, of the state that was absolutely catastrophic that would not have occurred if they had realized that the issue isn't just how bad this is, but that it's happening along with other things and it's happening at the same time. That is how I see the erosion of civil liberties in the United States and even the attacks on uh, civil liberties in the United States today as part of a larger narrative having to do with the slide in our country from the operations of democracy to the operations of aristocracy. And I say aristocracy rather than pointing at saying that it's oligarchy, because I think that when we recognize it as aristocracy, we recognize that it's the same thing we were fighting in 1776. The American Revolution turned out to be an ongoing process. The idea that just a few people would be deemed entitled to resources and opportunities, educational, wealth creating, and every other, on, on every other level, at the expense of the majority of the people in the system or in the culture, that represents an aristocratic paradigm. And so what has happened here is a reverse. It is actually that we have reverted to an aristocratic paradigm. And what all of us need to realize is what my father made sure we were taught and were so clear about when we were children. You must always be vigilant. In a way, people who have had a history of oppression are a little more hip to these things. I always say no black or Jew per Jewish person is surprised at anything that is going on. Because there is something that happens when the very cells in your body go, well, I've seen this one before. These are just new iterations, ladies and gentlemen, of the dangerous viral forces that have been with humanity from the very beginning. There have always been those who sought to oppress. But today, it's oppression rebranded. And that is what is so, so pernicious today. It's, it's kind of, there's a little bit of a fascism with a smiley face among us today. And that is why education matters so much. 
because if you're not educated about things, you don't realize what's going on. You don't, you're not able to read it for what it is. We have 11 states in the United States that don't even require half a year of American history and civics. That is, that's it right, that, that, it, it, that's it right there. You know, if, you, if you're not taught as a child what the Bill of Rights is, how do you know to be horrified when as an adult you see it's under assault? Well, if you weren't taught what the Bill of Rights is, I remember asking a friend uh, once we were at a school and I said, these kids aren't saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Why aren't they saying the Pledge of Allegiance? When I was a child, we said the Pledge of Allegiance. And he erupted, because there is no fucking liberty and justice in America. He just went off on this rant. And I remember saying to him, that's true, but the fact that when I was a little girl, I put my hand in front of my heart and I took a pledge, it's not a guarantee, it's a pledge to one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, is what turned me into a woman who gets very upset when I see that liberty and justice thing not happening. And this is what happens when too many generations are raised with situations that are becoming adults, where situations arise, and I've seen it, you've seen it, anybody who's interested in these issues has seen it, where you tell somebody something that just happened and they go, well, I don't see the big deal about that. The bigger problem is not just that it happened, but that the American that you just talked to doesn't see that it's a big deal. And so our work that's cut out for us, and I think one of the reasons I'm, I'm running for president is because I believe that it's not just on the external level that things need to change. Americans need a, re, a, a, new, a new embrace of what the principles of American liberty and justice actually mean. And that's why I look forward to using my skill set which would be, uh, be in the form of the bully, bully pulpit, to make people excited about citizenship again. Democracy does not just entail rights. And as marvelous as it is that <clears throat> the ACLU and other organizations seek vigilantly to protect those rights, democracy also entails responsibilities. And to me, the responsibilities that democracy places in my hands are as important as the rights that I'm given as an American. What is my responsibility? To bequeath to others, to other generations, what I have been given. To teach my daughter what my father and mother taught me. To pass it on. But with something like a real embrace of principle, you can't embrace, you can't pass on to others what you have not already taken into yourself. It's not enough for the principles of, <clears throat> of the Declaration of Independence and the basic principles of the U.S. Constitution to just be written on marble walls somewhere or written in parchment and put behind glass somewhere. And maybe a child once in their life will visit Washington and see it in a museum. That's death to democracy. Then democracy loses its moral force. These things must be taken into our hearts. In the Jewish religion, it says that every generation must discover God for itself. And every generation of Americans has to discover these ideas for yourself. As I get older, what I realize about the principles of American democracy is how radical they are. You know, I remember reading many years ago, I like to think this would not still be true, but I don't know, it might be, that a survey was taken, and if the American people had to vote on the basic Bill of Rights today, not knowing they were principles from the Bill of Rights, they would turn it down. Because many of those rights have been now propagandized in such a way that many people think that things that should simply be the first principles that John Adams said he hoped we would revisit every year are deemed 
radical left wing by too many people. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an issue that goes beyond just the externalities. And if I'm president, the realization and the recognition of the integrative nature, that it's many things that have to change. Not only do we need to protect these civil liberties through the support of the work such as the ACLU, but the work of the ACLU, the White House should be based on the same principles as the work of the ACLU. Congress should be based on the same principles as the work of the ACLU. But the American people ourselves need to become more realigned with the principles of the ACLU. <clears throat> One of the issues that in my campaign I'm particularly concerned about and that I would be most active about uh, as president is the rights of American children. We have millions of American children who go to school not only hungry every day, we have millions of American children who go to school in classrooms that do not even have the adequate school supplies with which to teach a child to read. If a child cannot read by the age of eight, the chances of that child graduating from high school are drastically decreased, and the chances of that, that child being incarcerated someday is drastically increased. What we have done is basically normalize their despair. Now, I remind you, these children are full-on citizens of the United States of America. Attitudinally, I think we're still treating them like they're somebody's property. They are not. They are full-on citizens of the United States of America, and they are subject to all the rights thereof. Now, in our Declaration of Independence, it says that God gave, and to people like me, that God gave part is very important. God gave inalienable rights <clears throat> to life and to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness to all men, and that governments are instituted to secure those rights. Where are the rights of those children? Where are the rights of those children to pursue happiness? Millions of those children live in what's called America's domestic war zones. We have domestic war zones here, and we all know it. It might not be in the neighborhood where you live, but we all know that they're there. <clears throat> Millions of these children live in communities where the violence in their homes, their families, their streets, their schools, and their communities are so great that psychologists tell us they suffer chronically from a PTSD that is no less severe than the PTSD of returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. And the, the returning veteran has post-traumatic stress. These children have present traumatic stress because that trauma is triggered and re-triggered every day. In my mind, we should be rescuing these children no differently than we would rescue them from any natural disaster because these conditions in their lives are a natural disaster. All we have done and all the political establishment has done is to normalize their despair. They don't work, so they have no financial leverage. They're not old enough to vote, so they're not a constituency. So what possible hope do they have? What possible hope do they have of competing with the clout of the multinational corporate forces whose monetary influence flood our Congress every day? And by the way, I remind you, they also aren't old enough to know to call the ACLU. There, there, is, there is no advocacy for them if it is not advocacy uh, of, that is ours. And that advocacy, we all advocate for our own children. But this is what I see wrong with America today. We're not bad people, we're good people. The Amer I, I'm a fan of the American. We're a decent people. I'm not saying we're better than other people, but I don't think we're worse than anybody else either. The problem 
is that our search for ethics, and I do think the average American wakes up and wants to live a good life today and be a good person. I don't think that's the problem. The problem is that that search for a better life, which should include that I am better, not just that I get more, but that I am more, is circumscribed within our personal lives and has no longer been extended as it needs to be to include ethical questions and moral questions regarding the society at large. So if I'm not asking, is the economy good, I need to be asking more than, is the economy doing anything for me? I also need to be asking for all of us, is the economy just? I need to ask about a policy more than whether or not it serves me. I need to ask about a policy whether it's just. And I need to be asking more than whether or not this is just good for my kids. I need to be asking, is it good for all of our children, and not just the children of this country, but the children of the world? That is the love that will save the world. Now, these children, it, it's worth remembering that in the United States, we are the only <clears throat> advanced democracy that bases our educational funding primarily on property taxes. Well, there's the aristocracy right there. It's a new rebranded aristocracy, and it's made itself very, very attractive. So these children, if you, if you are born into a, to a financially advantaged neighborhood in America today, you stand a very good chance of getting a very high quality public education. But if you didn't, do you know we have elementary school children on suicide watch in this country? Do you know we have children in this country who are traumatized before they even go to preschool? Do you know how many millions of American children get their food? every day from a food bank, and the food banks are concerned because then when they give the children their food on Friday, they really don't know if some other family member will take the food, and so we're not sure the kids will eat before Monday. This is in the richest country in the world. So the rights of every citizen should mean not only, I know the ACLU is very good on standing up, I sometimes agree, sometimes I don't agree totally on those even with whom we, we, we don't uh, agree, but I would like to think that my candidacy and hopefully my presidency one day will end this blind spot we have about the trauma of so many of America's children. The issue of voting rights is very close to me, both in my, in my life and in my campaign, just because I'm an American, obviously, but I'm bringing it forth in the, in the uh, campaign within the historical context of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yeah, I think I do not believe that most Americans are racist. I don't, but I do think that Americans are vastly undereducated about the history of race in the United States. That, that seems to me I'm supposed to wrap it up. <laughs> so let me just say what I want to say about Voting Rights Act, if I may. It's not just that we have voter suppression efforts. I think it serves us in order to deepen our conversation to recognize the context for this erosion of our voting rights. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act was established to guarantee that black people would have full access to the polls. It was working. In 2013, when John, the John Roberts-led Supreme Court began to chip away at the Voting Rights Act, one of the great uh, Supreme Court dissents was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she likened it to, you've been using an umbrella, there's a rainstorm, we're using a, an umbrella and it's working, so you're now saying 
since it's working and I'm not getting wet, I don't need my umbrella anymore. And she said, I assure you, once you put down the umbrella, it will begin raining again. And of course, that's what all these voter suppression efforts are about. We, it's not just voter suppression efforts. We need to get deep and we need to get real, which is, once again, why I'm running deep and real. What is this really about? It's the work of the aristocracy. It's the work of the oligarchy. We know that these voter suppression efforts are aimed at particular groups of people. It is aimed at people of color. It is aimed at people of less advantageous resources. It is all the work of the aristocracy to make sure not just, they don't just want money, uh, the majority of the money to remain in their hands. They want the majority of the power to remain in their hands. I'm going to do everything I can. My father's been dead uh, for 20 years, but I will continue to try to get his approval every single day of my life. And I remember when I see things like that, and I hope that I live in such a way that my father, wherever he is, can hear me. I hear that voice of my father. Fight the system, little sister, and don't let the bastards get you down. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Marianne. Thank that you. was a wonderful introduction. I always appreciate when somebody emphasizes that ACLU values should be shared by everybody. Um, I want to start, we have some questions on note cards that people have submitted, and I also want to make sure that we get a chance for, to ask questions from the audience. Um, I am going to take advantage of being the moderator to ask the first question. Okay. Given what you talked about, which is the erosion of civil rights, the question that is actually asked that I'm going to elaborate on, which is, can you identify areas, civil liberties issues that you think the Republicans and Democrats could come together on? Where are there areas for collaboration in strengthening and promoting civil liberties? Well, first of all, I want to say civil liberties should not be seen as a left-right issue. Civil, the protection of civil liberties should not be seen as a Democrat versus Republican issue. Unity in diversity means that we are different cultures, different belief systems, different whatever, but we are joined by our common fealty to a set of principles. Civil liberties should be issues on which we all agree to agree, and the only conversation we should be having is how best to express and to actualize our loyalty to those principles. And I think we need to say that unabashedly. We need to recognize that's part of this whole holistic integrative conversation is the gaslighting and the messing with the mind. We need to make it very clear. ACLU should not be considered, and the principles of civil liberties should not be considered, uh, should not be considered uh, a lefty issue. They're certainly on it when it comes to their gun rights. They're certainly on it when it comes to the Second Amendment. So I think, you know, Eisenhower said that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. And I, I think that's true. There are high-minded uh, conservative values just as there are high-minded liberal values. And a high-minded conservative has as much respect for, uh, for civil liberties as a high-minded progressive. What we are uh, dealing with here is an authoritarian corporatism. And that is amoral and has no particular loyalty whatsoever uh, to the U.S. Constitution. It doesn't even have any loyalty. You know, it, it doesn't even, it, it, there's nothing personal about it. That, that worldview just finds democracy inconvenient to its purposes. So I, I think that where we can all agree, where we should all agree, is the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, something like free speech, something like, um, like freedom of the press, and all of the issues that are actually upon us now, even whether it has 
has to, to do with immigration, for instance. George Bush was, he was not unideological un about it. He wasn't bad on, on uh, immigration rights at all. We have moved so far to the right that things that used to be considered really just kind of moderate center positions are now seen as these major lefties. The right of asylum, that is a statutory right. The issue of Democrats and Republicans shouldn't be whether or not to help these people. It should only be, as it was when I was growing up, a conversation about how to help them. Ronald Reagan declared amnesty for something like eight million immigrants. So I think we need to be vigilant with our PR and vigilant with, uh, vigilant with our messaging that every uh, civil rights issue, every civil liberties issue should be one about which Democrats and Republicans can work together. And it's only an attack on, on those civil liberties. That attack has included introducing this idea that these are only left-wing issues, and that's part of the problem. I appreciate that. Questions from the audience. I know we have some. We'll start right here in the front row. Hello, Ms. Williamson. Uh, my name is Alex McEntee, and I am an ACLU voter, which means that I keep civil rights and civil liberties in mind when I'm making my vote. Um, I'm a non-binary gender queer person. This means that my gender falls in between male and female. Here in New Hampshire, we have two bills currently being voted on that would add a third gender option to birth records and state-issued IDs. My question for you is, what would you do to support the recognition of American adults and children whose gender does not fit in the two binary boxes? Uh, I'm a little hard of hearing, so I get close to a person so I can see you. So I hope that's okay. The um, cameras are kind of yeah, okay, I'll go back, but I just needed that. Um, it does not matter to me what your sex is. And it does not matter to me what your color is. And it does not matter to me what your ethnicity is. And it does not matter to me what your politics are as much as it matters to me that you are American. And therefore, if for your pursuit of happiness and the protection of your rights, not because you are binary in your sexuality, but because you are American, if that is what is needed to secure your rights, to secure your liberties, and to secure your pursuit of happiness, you absolutely bet I'm there with you. I've got your back and anything that you need, whether it's on a driver's license or in housing or in discrimination or anything else, you have the right to the same liberties, the same opportunities, and the same pursuit of happiness as any other American. I'm going to pull from the cards for the next one. So the issue of surveillance has come up in a number of these discussions, concerns about the use of surveillance by the government and especially by law enforcement. So the question that we have is how do you propose stopping the use of mass surveillance from turning targeted communities of color and poor communities into open air prisons? This is an area where if we think deeply about it and observe closely, it's even worse than we know. Not only is it even worse than we know, there's a lot we don't know. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we probably, you don't have to be a person of color or a person of a disadvantaged community to have a very reasonable suspicion that they might be looking at you too. So let's get a little deeper and a little more adult about this conversation of surveillance. I mean, the conversations that are going on now um, and have been going on for some time are such that what worries me most is how little I hear uh, 
senators talk about it, how little I hear Congress people talk about it. It's almost like it's some holy cow that they, almost like somebody took them into a room and said, you're not gonna touch that one. And, I, and I, I, it concerns me how many times our Congress people, particularly, and I wouldn't expect any differently from Donald Trump, but how often our, our government officials keep us distracted by ultimately less important issues because you do get the feeling that somebody's running the show on that one that is even perhaps more powerful than them. So yes, I see it as very, uh, very concerning. I believe that when it comes to uh, uh, neighborhoods of color, uh, high crime neighborhoods, for instance, one of the uh, worst things that's happened in the criminal justice issue has to do with how the Supreme Court decided that rules, uh, strategies of engagement for police officers in uh, neighborhoods of color or neighborhoods of high crime, that that was fair game for there to be lax, uh, less uh, or more lax standards. Uh, for strategies of engagement with people in their cars and so forth. And the same thing is going on with surveillance. But once again, I think that we need a greater education campaign to make every people understand something which, once again, I was taught as a child. If they could do it to anybody, they could do it to you. Just, I'm going to ask for a little more detail on that because I, I think... I, we share your perspective that surveillance is a deep concern. Do you have specific policies that you would support to prevent the use of mass surveillance? What I would want to know, is what I would want to have very clear, just as I'm clear about how the strategies of engagement for police officers are very different, I would want to know what exactly is happening in those neighborhoods. Not only in the, listen, there are many issues, it's just like this lady was talking about, um, uh, uh, the issue of, of being transgender, bin binary, et cetera, and how in housing there is discrimination or in jobs there is discrimination. Any, any way that there is discrimination against any neighborhood, whether it has to do with surveillance, whether it has to do with housing, whether it has to do with insurance, whether it has to do with, uh, with job discrimination, whether it has to do with police strategies, is the, is the civil liberties area. And I can't say that one seems any more or less important than any other. But I would certainly, as president, be privy to if I asked, and I would ask, and I would demand that, how does that work? What, what is exactly the surveillance that's going on in that neighborhood that's not going on in that neighborhood? And who's doing the surveillance? And why do you claim it's justified to do the surveillance? And my lawyers and my Department of Justice would call unconstitutional wherever it is unconstitutional and not work to advocate for the, for the, uh, for the unjust, unjust aristocrats, but rather seek to advocate for the U.S. Constitution. And I would, to the best of my, not just to the best of my ability, to the highest ability capable of any human being within a reasonable perspective, I would be on it and I would call it and I would also tell the American people what I saw and what I was doing about it. Questions from the audience? I'm Bob Joseph. I live in the lake region of uh, New Hampshire, about 30 minutes away. You left out a key word in the right to the pursuit of happiness. And this is why I strongly believe in a Medicare program for everyone. And it comes under general welfare. Nobody seems to overlook that. Everybody seems to not realize we have a constitutional right to health care. And something that's not managed 
by profit-making insurance companies that when you get sick, they either raise your premium because you use the policy? No. It's our right to health care by the government. <clears throat> I not only agree with you, sir, I would go further than that. Because I think, and I do support a Medicare for all type system, I support keeping the Obamacare exchanges, augmenting those with a Medicare for all. People will gravitate to that, and people should be able to, I believe, keep your private insurance if you want. But it's important as well, and I do believe it's a general welfare issue. But I believe that the general welfare, even in regards to health, should go further than that. We do not have a health care system, ladies and gentlemen. We have a sickness care system. So we have a system that says, you know, Western medicine is very good about uh, addressing acute, uh, acute disease so we, and chronic disease. So we have a situation in which once you get sick, the society's conversation and the political conversation is how are you going to pay for your health care? What we need is a president who recognizes that there are many issues besides its health insurance, public or private, environmental policies, food policies, chemical policies. There are so many ways in which America's advocacy for short-term profits for uh, multinational corporations rather than people is bound to make you sick. The carcinogens in your food, the toxins, and even the economic stress, the econ and the water and the ground. And now, of course, with this administration, they've gutted the Clean Water Act and gutted the Clean Air Act and overturned the ban on pesticides that every Obama administration uh, scientist had voted to permanently ban because we know it harms a developing child's brain. And, you know, I say to people in my, um, in my audiences all the time, if it's a public issue, it will get to your private door. Good luck with all that green juice you're drinking and all that gluten-free, because if they're poisoning the air and they're poisoning the, the food, then you're not going to be able to protect yourself. So it's not just that we need a better way and a more moral way and a more constitutional way to provide for the general welfare by providing health care for people who need it. We need to stop attacking people's health. You mentioned voting rights in your opening yes. remarks. Um, one of the questions that we've been repeatedly asked is, would you support restoring the right to vote to people who are formerly incarcerated? Absolutely. You know, there's a, a basic core of American justice is when you have paid your debt to society, you have paid your debt to society. If it is deemed that it, you have paid your debt enough as an incarcerated person, that it is now time for you to be, uh, to be freed, you will now be a member of the general population, so this is one of the many areas where our government acts punitively when in order to have general peace and prosperity, our government should be acting in a way that helps people thrive. Our society should be invested in somebody coming out of prison knowing I've served my time, I, I, paid, I paid my debt, and now I want to be a productive member of society, and society is supporting me in doing that. All we do is to increase the probability of the rate of recidivism, et cetera, by making, and we still think you're bad. You might be out, but we still think you're bad. You know, my daughter lives in England, and she went to law school there. And when she uh, did that, she worked in some prison situations. And she told me, she said, Mommy, uh, somebody called himself a convict today. And my teacher said, you're not a convict. You're just somebody who made a mistake. We do not call ourselves convicts here. I thought that was so profound. 
that they would say to the people, you're not a convict, you're someone who made a mistake. So I think, once again, it's not just the right of the incarcerated or the formerly incarcerated. There's something deeper there. It speaks to what we believe as Americans. We should be helping people thrive and supporting someone, not, and not just in that way either, in having a life after incarceration, which is as a thriving and productive member of society. That's how you serve America. By hurting others, we're hurting ourselves. Okay, good morning. Um, I'm Paul, I'm a Air Force veteran, and I'm just wondering, next year we're gonna celebrate the diamond anniversary of VE Day, VJ Day, and we still have troops in Germany, Korea, and Japan. Isn't that time we scale back? Because these countries have strong economies, <coughs> and they're bringing cars in the United States, and American GIs can afford them, because the space scales today in the 219 aren't like they were in 1972 when a buck private made 268 a month. What did you say? Germany, Japan, and what was the other country you mentioned? South Korea. South Korea. Okay. <clears throat> well, first of all, uh, we have 800 bases, military bases, 700 countries. 800 military bases, 700 countries. So I think it's more than Japan, Korea, and, and Germany to look at. I, don't, I can't say now, first of all, this is, you know, once again, I'm running for president, so I'm not going to speak off the cuff, although in some situations you almost have to here. When it comes to Germany, I would have a deep question. Germany has been reunified. I'm not sure why we have troops in Germany. I, that doesn't make sense to me. If we want to be honest about South Korea and, and uh, Japan, I'm not so sure that it's completely illegitimate. Uh, North Korea is a, is a serious issue. Uh, this is not one to play partisan politics. Uh, or even anti-Trump. I mean, uh, this is not, you know, North Korea is a very serious issue. So uh, I'm not sure if, as president, I would not see a, a legitimate reason. Uh, and, and that includes Japan, actually. So I'm, I'm not sure about that. Germany, I, 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 why do we need troops in Germany? Yes, sir. Or is that part of NATO? Is that part of a NATO? Uh, well, I, I support NATO. I think that the, that the president's um, uh, denigration of NATO and um, cheap and easy uh, criticism of NATO has been a, an attack on the Western alliance in general. And I don't necessarily support that. Yes? Remember ASQC. Pardon, I, I can't hear you. American Society of Quality Control. He was a long time member. And one of the last meetings he went Is this to something that perhaps we could follow up with afterwards, one on one? I just want to make sure we have time for other questions. Hi, good afternoon. Um, with one in five Americans experiencing a disability, including 19% of likely voters, I'm just curious as to what your campaign is doing to either employ people with disabilities or if you're elected president, what your administration would do to hire people with disabilities. And finally, um, is your campaign doing anything to make sure that events such as this are accessible to people with disabilities? So... I recognize the importance of the American uh, with Disabilities Act. I understand the importance of taking any group that might otherwise feel marginalized and making sure that they are part of, of a vital, every, every vital aspect of American society and that there is nothing in, 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 a, in a way that could be addressed legally that thwarts that ability. In terms of my campaign, no, although I think I think I, have to, <laughs> I think there are certain times at the end of a day when I'm so tired I have some emotional disability. But I believe in terms of uh, when I think in terms of the staff, and it is a small staff. I do not have the kind of money that other campaigns have. So no, there is no one uh, that is um, 
uh, that is part of a disabled community working on my staff, although I thank you for bringing it up. Because while I do certainly think in terms of diversity uh, on the campaign, that until you just said that, I had not included that in my thinking. And as the campaign grows, I promise you, I will not forget what you just said. And as the campaign grows and I have more money and I can build more infrastructure, that will definitely be part of, of my thinking and our operation. In addition to that, because you brought it up, I promise you, if I'm president of the United States, you will see that I didn't forget that you said that to me today. There's one quick question that we have on the cards, which is, would you support net neutrality? Oh, I, I think the end of net neutrality is one of the most significant attacks on equal rights that has come down the pike in decades. And when, you know, when I, when I was a child, there was a firewall between news and, and entertainment, like in, in a newspaper. First of all, when I was a child, the same company couldn't own the newspaper and couldn't own, and the radio station and the TV station. I was brought up at a time when we understood about the importance of the diversification of ideas and, and the importance of equal access to those ideas. And I think that this is another example. When you talk about my problem with the net neutrality issue is not just the attacks on, on uh, net neutrality. What is it, Ajit Patai, or how do you, is that how you pronounce his name, Ajit Patai? The FEC, uh, uh, yeah, uh, FFC, right? Federal Communicate, FCC, right, FCC. It's not just Mr. Patai or, uh, that is the problem. It's how many Americans you talk to who don't get what a big deal it is. Mm -hmm who don't get what a big deal it is, and I'll say something like, okay, well, let me tell you what it means. It means that you're gonna put up your little, uh, your website, but then some huge corporate conglomerate, theirs is gonna come up fast, and yours is gonna come up slow unless you pay a lot of money. And then that person goes, well, that's not fair. I'm like, yeah, but if you don't get active about it now, it's gonna happen, and by the time you say, wow, it's not fair, it won't make any difference. That is the deeper problem in America, is that we don't understand, we must prevent these things. We must be proactive, if you don't put light in the room, don't go surprised that go being all surprised that there's darkness. Now, obviously, there is a lot of good work that has been done on this, and uh, the resistance is strong on this one. I'm glad to say, but absolutely, I see it as front line. Man, once once you kill net neutrality, um, as my dad would say, the bastards got gotcha. you. Other questions. Hi, Marianne. Uh, really loved hearing you speak about um, that civil rights aren't, they're not, de they're not Democrat or Republican issues. They're people, they're American issues. Well, electrons aren't red or blue. They're there for all of us. And just thinking about the planet, you know, we know that we have, a, uh, three months ago, we were told we have 12 years to, to change course. We're now down to 11 years and seven months by my calculation. Tell us about what you're going to do as our president of, on clean energy. Well, first of all, I want to address the Republican-Democratic issue on that. It was a Republican president, Richard Nixon, who established the EPA. Uh, when I was growing up, there were liberal Republicans. And there were certainly, when I was growing up, Republicans who were known for their environmental concerns. So this is an aberration, what's happening now. And I always say this because I think it's the role of those who are old enough to, to be the sort of story keepers to tell young people, this isn't the way it always was. This is an aberration. 
If I'm president of the United States, one of the first things I will do is to appoint a world-class environmentalist to the head of the EPA. No more apologists or uh, former executives from the chemical companies, from the oil companies. <laughs> Fossil fuel companies can be retired from the uh, e EPA. Uh, the EPA will be a magnet for the most brilliant uh, environmental scientists, sustainability experts, etc. The EPA will know that you have a president who has your back, a president who gets that we have 11 years and seven months in order to turn this thing around. I know that you guys know what to do with the carbon sequestration, with the reforestation, uh, with the factor, uh, uh, the animal, the, the factory farming, with the nitrous oxide, with the methane, with the development of, 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 of retrofitting, with the development of, uh, of new kinds of tr uh, mass transit, particularly, uh, that will be green. The, and not only will the full force and power of the executive branch be put at the service of this work, but also, once again, I feel that my skill as a communicator uh, will be helpful in making it very clear to the American people, the debate is over. Those who sought in their ways to obstruct an adequate and appropriate response to the climate crisis have always been wrong. They are wrong now. And not, I mean, Ladies and gentlemen, do you know that 20, we gave $26 billion in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, to the oil industry itself last year? That's how corrupt it all is. That stops when I'm president. An issue that has become very prominent in this presidential campaign is mass incarceration, specifically ending it. And one of the commitments that we've asked each candidate is, would you commit to reducing mass incarceration by 75% during your presidential term? Reducing it, absolutely. That 75%, I've never heard specific that number, and I want to be very careful and not just pander to popularity here. This I do know, and I've been, you know, you. I think one of you mentioned my books. Uh, my book, Healing the Soul of America, that came out in 1997, uh, included a lot about mass incarceration, wealth inequality, racial injustice, et cetera. Uh, so I was, I was onto this when it was still a stage one cancer. Uh, I'm not somebody who just wandered in the room once it became a stage four cancer. So I'm very well aware. I remember seeing the movie of Eugene Jarecki. I've been very concerned about this issue. I'm also concerned because the work that has been done by people like Van Jones and Jerry Jared Kushner most recently addressing this issue, has, while admirable, been focused on the prisoner and focused on what happens in the life of the prisoner once they get out. My concern is that this might make people feel like, okay, we've kind of handled it. We have not even begun to handle it. We have to start on the other end with those strategies of engagement, why so many people of color particularly are stopped to begin with, and why the police have so much opportunity. I believe that the average American cannot fully appreciate the level of stress and trauma that the average police person is under every day. And I believe that the average white person cannot fully appreciate the stress and the trauma that the average black person feels every time they see a police car go by or hear a police sir a siren. These are emotional and psychological issues. The body has its own knowing and so the stress and the trauma, it's a lot like the Palestinians and the Israelis, the stress and the trauma of one, of one group that's, cutting, that, that's coming up against the stress and the trauma of another group, which just increases the probability of absolute catastrophe. 
And there is a there is a law that's been proposed in California recently having to do with mandating less than le uh, lethal force by policemen much sooner, because I think we've all seen that. You see something like a story that happened in France, and you see what the police did to bring the person down, and you wonder, well, why do we always shoot them, right? So there is so much work that I want to do on this issue, much of it including the mindfulness and the, the, mental, the mental issues and the economic issues. Once again, this is so gnarly. There's so much here that happens way that starts way before people are put into jail. Uh, a friend of mine, he's become my friend, my mentor, the man who has taught me so much, is uh, he was the police chief of a major U.S. city and is now police chief of the, the uh, school district in that major city, which is a city majorly dealing with these issues. He was talking to me about the fact that when the police come in to do a drug raid, let's say, and they come in with their guns blazing, et cetera, he was talking about how often children are in the house, and that we're not factoring in the trauma of those children. So this man who, and, and there's no counseling for this. There's no counseling for the police either. There's very little. So this police chief, whose name I'm not using simply because I don't know if he would want me to, he said um, that he, 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 he's this great guy, right, and very into all the things that we're all into. And he said that he likes to go around into the schools to talk to kids, and he goes in with his police chief you know, uniform on. And he asks the children, uh, what do you think of the police? And he said, almost everyone has, I hate the police because my dad's in jail. Or I hate the police because my mom's in jail. Or I hate the police because of this and that. So I realize that the issue of mass incarceration, like all of these other issues, it's why I'm running. We have to have a much deeper conversation about the elements than just what happens ending mass incarceration on that end. We have to start with a much deeper issue of racial reconciliation, uh, police engagement, strategies of engagement, treatment of children, et cetera. My, absolutely my hope, given how many nonviolent offenders are in the, uh, uh, in the prison system, not only nonviolent offenders, how many of those nonviolent offenders have to do with drugs, and particularly uh, mar even marijuana, and particularly the fact that we have the same level of drug use in white America and black America, but in black America, uh, incarceration is far more probable and up to 20% more. I'm on it, I'm hip to it, and I would change it. So since you mentioned it, I'll follow up. Yeah. Do you support cannabis legalization? Yes, I do. And I also support letting all those people out of prison who were there because of cannabis. <laughs> you know, somebody has to explain to me, where do we get off? All of a sudden, it's cannabis instead of marijuana. But yes, I'm. <laughs> I must have been. <laughs> I can make so many jokes that I'm not making now that I'm a president. <laughs> and I'll ask one other follow-up because it, it's on the cards, which is, one of the questions is, how would you end mass incarceration? And uh, cash bail is an issue that comes up a lot. Yes, of course. As part of your proposal to end mass incarceration, would you support ending cash bail? Yes, I would support ending cash bail. But once again, I think I would go beyond the normal purview. When I say I'm going to uh, end mass incarceration, and then also there should not be private prisons. I mean, building prisons is one of the single largest one of the single largest urban industries in the United States. But once again, my candidacy represents a holistic look, not just treating symptoms, we treat cause. And that's why I mentioned strategies of engagement, the trauma of children, the trauma of police, and the trauma of the basic situation of racial tension, which is why, among other things, I support reparations for slavery. We have time for a couple more. <clears throat> 
Thank you. If I may ask a campaign strategy question? Yes. Um, would, it be would it be advantageous or detrimental to your campaign or other Democratic candidates if Congress began impeachment proceedings between now and, say, New Hampshire primary? First of all, I think the last thing I want to do is base my strategy or my ideas about the strategy for other Democrats on something other than what is best for this country. So I'm going to ask the, answer the question from, from how I see it as an American, not as a candidate, because that's, to me, the corruption of politics, that I would see it any other way. Do I believe the president has committed impeachable offenses? Yes, I do. Do I believe that, that Nancy Pelosi and the House of Representatives should start impeachment proceedings? Well, first of all, obviously, her, her decision. I'm sure she understand, appreciates the quandary. But my answer is not necessarily for obvious reasons. The Senate is in charge. The Senate is in the hands of the Republicans. So we could bring impeachment. We could even impeach him in the House. They're not going to remove him from office. And the question then becomes the, the, the capital, the political capital, uh, that went into that as opposed to other things we could be spending our political capital on. Meanwhile, the race is on for president. So how long would that take? And also, you know, there are other psychological elements other people have pointed out that think it's true. There are a lot of people who would feel that the president would be treated, it's been treated unjustly. You probably heard William Barr this morning. It was all a witch hunt, his new Roy Cohen. He's apparently found his Roy Cohen and he kept saying he wanted. <laughs> Uh, this political lackey who calls himself uh, attorney general. He, the Mueller report proved there was no collusion. You guys need to stop, and we're going to prove this. We are on the side of the president. You've got to stop treating him so badly. We're going to reelect him just to show you. I mean, so many things could come from that. Um, that's how I tend to see it. One issue I want to make sure we touch upon is reproductive rights. Um, and it's an issue that has come up a lot during this campaign, given concerns about where the federal bench is going on this issue. So as president, what would you do to ensure that reproductive rights are protected? Well, I would be very hopeful that I got to appoint one or two Supreme Court justices. Uh, and I would hope that any appointment that I made to the Supreme Court and any appointment having to do with any place in the judiciary uh, would be someone that I, I felt uh, was strong on this issue. Um, overturning Roe v. Wade, I believe, is a very serious threat. I think many young women particularly have taken for granted uh, what older women realize uh, was, um, was not to be taken for granted. And uh, as you know, there are efforts not just on the federal level, but there are efforts on state levels, uh, local levels, uh, to impinge upon the rights of a woman. I believe that the Democratic Party has made a big strategic error by, by contextualizing this issue only in terms of a woman's right to control her own body. I think that this, like many other issues, has been something that has lost us a lot of uh, political support because of people who simply did not see that we appreciated their, their, their moral values. I do think abortion is a moral issue, but I believe it's an issue of private morality. And I believe that a woman uh, in communion with the God of her understanding, with her own conscience related to what her own uh, particular circumstances are, uh, must land on that from a moral context. And I believe that most of them do. 
And I do not believe that the government has any business in other people's moral decision making, except for the except for the obviously universal injunction of uh, against sex with children. The government has no right to tell any American what they can or cannot do with their bodies at all. Period. End of story. Zero tolerance. I would say that's a really good note to end on. I'm so sorry that our time is up. I do want to note just a couple things. I want to thank everybody for coming out on this midday. Um, this is part of our Civil Liberties in the Presidency series. Our hope is to bring every presidential candidate here to talk to you about civil liberties. Um, tomorrow we're hosting Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard at 630, so we hope you'll come out to that as well and bring your questions. Um, I want to thank, again, the Rudman Center and UNH School of Law for hosting this series. Um, and thank you so much for coming. Stay tuned for future events. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about us by visiting law.unh.edu or following UNH Law on social media. Be sure to comment and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.